invite you to open your Bible tonight to Psalm 47, Psalm 47, a psalm that really goes well with uh, the message this morning coming out of Revelation chapter 1, uh, thinking tonight about uh, Jesus Christ as Lord and King. It's a psalm, it's, a, it's an idea that we hear about a lot, and Psalm 47 helps us to sort of unpack uh, the truth of it so we can uh, delight in it. And uh, so let's give our attention, Psalm 47, I'm going to read the entire psalm. Psalm 47, clap your hands, all peoples, shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord the Most High is to be feared. A great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises to him with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word tonight. Well, God in heaven, I pray that you would give us, Lord, eyes of faith to see the beauty of Jesus, our King, and to celebrate as we're called to in this psalm. Help us understand, Lord, the difference this makes for our life. Uh, and Lord, uh, lead us to worship then tonight. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 47 is a psalm that um, has been sort of sitting in front of me for a while. We were going through the psalms. Uh, we're doing a series. And psalm 47 is the next in the series. But it's not a psalm that I was anticipating coming to because it's a challenge for me. I think it's a challenge for most of us. I doubt, and I've, I say this carefully because I've said this before and I've been shown wrong. I doubt Psalm 47 is a personal favorite uh, of, of many of you, if, if any of you at all. Um, as you know, psalms are the expressions of uh, the religious uh, experience of God's people. Psalms are, uh, they contain the language of religious emotion. So you find in the psalms uh, expressions of great joy before the Lord for his salvation, uh, gratitude and thanksgiving for the Lord's blessings. You find uh, sorrow for sin and words of repentance. You find um, prayers uh, asking for help in times of need. You find laments when uh, the writer feels that God is not, um, is not helping as he ought or has turned his face from him. And that's why we love the Psalms, because uh, we experience those things. Those are not strange uh, feelings or experiences for God's people. And in the Psalms, we find words to express them, our life before the Lord. That's why we love the Psalms. Well, Psalm 47 is a, is a bit of a challenge because uh, we are culturally ill-equipped to access the joy and the enthusiasm of this psalm. The, um, this is an enthronement psalm, a song that is, that is sung before the king to celebrate his ascension to the throne, to celebrate his reign. Uh, but enthronement psalms don't really resonate well for American Christians, because we don't really get kings. 
we, um, our existence as a nation, of course, uh, began with the rejection of kings. The whole thought of royalty and uh, kings and thrones um, we wanted to be done with as, as a nation. But, um, but in the day that this was written, uh, kings were, were maybe the most important thing about um, your life, well, my most important, be very, very, very critical for the uh, stability and the welfare of the nation and for your own family and your own life. Uh, kings are sources of authority. We all recognize that if a nation is going to operate just like a home, there need to be laws, there need to be rules, and there needs to be an authority that's able to maintain those laws and rules. Well, that's what kings do. Uh, in our nation, we believe in government by consent of the governed. Kings govern by consent of themselves, right? Maybe they've got family lineage, which gives them the right to reign, or they've got a very strong military, which gives them the authority to reign, but their, their uh, consent doesn't come from the populace, and yet their authority is very critical. Um, when you live under the reign of a king, particularly in these days, um, their, their word is the law. What they say is what will take place. Uh, you do have a choice. It's a free country. Uh, you can either consent and live or refuse and be put to death. That's how it works. The authority of the king is, is, is a very significant, meaningful part of your world if you would live in Israel that day. Um, kings also represent status. For most of the history of the world, there was not this thing that we call the middle class. That's a somewhat modern um, reality. So there would be, there would be uh, tradesmen and uh, merchants of different sorts, but basically the world is split up into two classes, royalty and everybody else. Royalty have access to a lifestyle and to riches and privileges that the rest of the world can only dream of. Uh, they, um, they have money, they have power, they have resources, they can travel, they can enjoy leisure, they have servants who serve them. Um, they, are, they are almost live like gods. They are, they are surrounded with, with wealth. And, and their unmatched power and authority, they just say things and it happens would be, would be um, so far above most everyone else in, in, the, in the kingdom. Now, the opulence of a king and the authority of a king, in our day, we, we envy uh, the super rich. Um, we, have a, we have a little bit of a grudge maybe against them. Well, in, in the, the Israel particularly, but in the world of that day, the opulence of a king is can be a source of civic pride. When, when you see the, the opulence of your king, it, has some, it says something about the significance and the wealth and the status of your country. And so national identity is wrapped up in the king. For instance, Solomon's splendor wasn't primarily just about what a rich man he was or what a smart man he was. Solomon's splendor was a statement about Israel as a nation. And so when kings and queens from around the world came to visit Solomon and to marvel at his wisdom and to, uh, and to see his wealth, 
uh, and walking away amazed. Every Israelite took great pride in that. Uh, Solomon's status was a, uh, a symbol of national uh, identity and a, and a source of tremendous civic pride. Uh, kings represented the nation. And then there was the, the issue of safety. The world of 1000 BC and, and most of, um, yeah, of, of the world of that day was a very threatening place. Uh, there were marauding bands of criminals that made their way through the countryside, uh, roving, uh, looking for treasure, looking for to get what they could get. Uh, ambitious kings of other lands were uh, routinely gathering their armies and setting out to expand their kingdoms. There was every year war season. We know this from uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, in the spring of the year when kings go off to war. That was uh, just a repeated pattern. Well, the locals paid the price, right? They would, if you were in the, in the line of uh, those attacks, you would have your land confiscated, your homes would be destroyed, wives and children could be taken into captivity, sold into slavery. Uh, these things happened routinely. And so having a strong king who could protect you was a tremendous blessing. Let me try to illustrate in a way that maybe you'll, you'll, you'll feel it. Uh, some of you are aware that the states of uh, Ohio and Michigan um, have a bit of a rivalry, uh, particularly uh, regarding their respective universities. But imagine if Ohio was a different country, an enemy country, and, um, and it really was a matter of life and death. Right? Not just, wasn't just a football game. What if we actually lived in constant danger of invasion and desolation by bloodthirsty Buckeyes? <laughs> right? You say, it happens every other year. <laughs> if, that was, if that really was the way it was, which is exactly the way it was in the world of, of, of this day, wouldn't you rejoice in a king who could protect you, who could conquer your vowed enemy, who could protect your life with his military might, you would love that king. You would revel in his power. You would rejoice in his glory and be ecstatic about his military accomplishments. You would sing songs to that king. Well, that's exactly how Israel uh, would feel about their king. That's how they felt about David. That's how they felt about Solomon. And now you can maybe sense the enthusiasm behind an enthronement psalm. This isn't, these aren't just sort of pious words um, for somebody who's important. This, this, this is a song, a psalm to, to someone you love, to someone whose enthronement matters a, tr a great deal, matters tremendously to you. Your life has, is being molded by the reality of this king. And so with that in mind, let's look together at the psalm itself. It's a wonderful psalm. First, the call. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. It's clearly an invitation that borders on a command, a command to rejoice in God. The psalmist will do this routinely. Be glad in God. Rejoice in the Lord. They're commands. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. Don't only sing, but sing with joy. And so uh, clapping and singing, well, clapping is universally equated with gladness, isn't it? A little children will clap their hands when they're so excited about something that the, it just has to ha have outlet somehow. 
Uh, clapping is a way of showing tribute, of showing deep appreciation and gratitude. Maybe you uh, can remember being at a concert where the music was so powerful and so beautiful and so uh, just wonderfully well done and you were so moved that when the last note died away you couldn't help but leap to your feet and applaud and maybe even yell right there'd be shouts coming from uh, the auditorium why do we do that well because when we come in the presence of things that are magnificent and beautiful and true we can't help it there's something within you that must respond. And that's, that's the scene. Uh, the, the writer is, is calling us, with God in our view, to sense that native response of worship and joy. A, whole, a vast throng of people leaping to their feet and with shouting and roaring and clapping rejoicing in the beauty and the majesty and the power and the truth of this king. But I want you to notice, uh, this is a command for everyone. It's not just for Israel. He's not just calling fellow Jews to rejoice in God their king, but the whole world. He visions all the nations, all the peoples coming together to worship before the king. Now, this would have struck the surrounding nations as arrogant and odd. The nations all had their own gods and their own kings, right? But they had their own um, significant rulers. So the, the Philistines had Baal, the fertility god. The Egyptians had Ra, the sun god. Syrians had Ashur. Everyone had their own gods. That's how it, that's how it worked. And, and gods were tribal deities. They belonged to those nations. And people would boast in their respective gods. And the general principle was, you clap for your gods, we'll clap for our gods. But the psalmist rejects uh, that rule. He calls all the nations to rejoice in the God of Israel, Yahweh. All the peoples of the world commands them to rejoice in Israel's God. That's really bold. On what basis can, can the writer possibly command all the nations of the world, all having their own gods, to come and worship and celebrate and rejoice in Israel's God? And the answer is, is really astounding in its simplicity. The basis is, God is uh, Israel's God is king over the whole world. That's the claim. Uh, you might have your gods, they're just pathetic idols made by men, there actually is a living God of heaven who reigns over the, all the world, and that is the God of Israel. And so we have, secondly, the king, his identity. For the Lord, most, the Lord, the most high, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. You see, the universal command to rejoice in God is rooted in the universal reign of God. And, and, and God, not as an empty figurehead, but act, the actual king, of which every earthly king is this tiny, shadowy, misty reflection. The greatest kings of the earth are, are pawns in his hand, and when he blows, they disappear. Once again, just as this morning, we see here in Psalm 47, just the sheer reality of God as God, and his consequent right 
to be worshipped by everyone. God is not uh, the, the, the Christian deity. He's, he's not an American deity. He is the living, actual God of heaven and earth who made everything. And there's, he has no rivals. There's only one God, right? He's not, he's not our God. I read an article, um, our God in the sense that we own him. He's our tribal deity. I read an article this past week uh, that, that talked about how millennial Christians are increasingly reluctant to evangelize because they sense there's something inappropriate about telling other uh, people of other religions um, that they have to give up their religion and, and come to the Christian religion. Uh, what right do we have to tell a, an, a sincere Muslim that he needs to uh, give up his Muslim religion and become a Christian? Uh, what right would we have to tell a sincere Buddhist or pick your, pick your religion? That they need, what right do we have to tell them they must change their religion and become like us? Well, in one sense, we have no right at all. We have no authority of ourselves. But, but what if we're messengers of the king? What if the, what if the king has commanded us to go into his world and into the nations that all belong to him and tell people about him. Well, then you see, we have all the authority, and not only the authority, we have the obligation to fail to, to speak for the king is disobedience. We have, an, we have an obligation to trumpet God's claim over his earth, his world, and everyone in it. It's just wonderful how in the gospel, in the Bible, we have this incredible boldness combined with complete humility. He's not our God. I'm not trying to sell you on my tribal deity. I'm simply trying to help you see the reality of God as he is and who he is. This is exactly how Paul uh, speaks. He says, we are Christ's ambassadors. We don't have any authority ourselves. God making his appeal through us. That's who we are. And that's our authority and our obligation. We're just people who, by the sheer incredible grace of God, have come to realize the truth about God. That there actually is a living God of heaven and earth, that he's holy and he's sovereign, he's good, he's terrifying, but he's full of grace and love for sinners. He's revealed himself in Jesus Christ, and, and anyone can come to know him, and everyone can call upon his name, and everyone who does will be saved. And so our call as a church, this is a mission song. Our call as a church is to, is to speak into this world of darkness and, and into a world of men and women who love to live in unreality, people who speak and act as if there is no sovereign king at all. And somehow we believe that the American way of, uh, of government is the way the, the universe is governed, and it simply isn't. The universe is a theocracy. God reigns. God rules. And so it's utter foolishness, you see, to live as if there's no sovereign king to whom people will give an account and must give an account. Uh, in America, we have this idea that we have uh, the, the, our individual feelings and rights are sovereign. We, we will even say that we have rights over our own body. Well, it's just nonsense. 
The whole abortion industry is based on a woman's right, to, uh, that she has a sovereign right over her body. It's, it's, it's a fantasy. God alone has sovereign rights over your body and over your mouth and over your money and over your emotions and every aspect of your, of your life and your world. Why? Well, because he's the king, the king who created you. And the Lord Most High is to be feared. And, and that fear, it, it's, a, it's a, such a rich word in the Hebrew. It, it doesn't just mean terror, but it has that sense to it. I, I, I remember, um, and most of you probably do, of, of having a, a little bit of terror when it comes to your, your, your parents. Um, I, I hope that's okay to say. Uh, Dad's not here tonight, so um, I'll get away with it. But... But I remember being a little guy who uh, deeply respected my father because um, he was big and strong, and, and, and when you crossed him, there were consequences that were never pleasant. And there's a, there's, a, there's a rightness to that, a sense that there's an authority that needs to be respected. That's exactly what this word is about, that, that we have a sense that God is a God to be respected deeply. And, and there's fear mingled in with that. And yet there's also love and adoration and worship. God is to be feared because he's God. He's to be acknowledged and reverenced as sovereign, as reigning, as judge over all the earth. There's, there's nothing worth fearing more than the God who reigns. And then the psalm gets really bold. Because he doesn't simply call all the nations to rejoice in the reality of God. He calls all the nations to rejoice in God's victory over the nations. Look at verse 3. Remember, we're calling all the peoples to, re, to, to celebrate this. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. Uh, there's a, I think it's a Yiddish word. I'm not sure, but I, I think it's Yiddish. Uh, chutzpah. Um, chutzpah is just a really sort of shocking um, courage? Um, really, you went there? Yeah. Uh, you're going to call the nations to celebrate God's victory over the nations. So the writer wants all the, all the nations of the world to clap their hands and rejoice in their own defeat at the hands of God. So Egyptians, come together and clap your hands and rejoice in God's devastating destruction of Pharaoh and his mighty deliverance of Israel. And he goes on even talking about the conquest of the land of Canaan. Verse 4, he chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loves. He's talking about the land of Canaan. And so he's saying, you, you, you peoples from the land of Canaan, the Moabites and Hittites and Jebusites and Amorites, Come and celebrate God's utter desolation of your nation as he brought Israel into the land. Philistines, come and rejoice in David's mighty victory as the warrior of God over you. That's chutzpah. Why would he do this? How could he do this? How can the psalmist have this kind of courage? Because you see, the victories of God are victories over the kingdom of darkness. 
God's judgment on the land of Egypt and Canaan were not simply God having compassion on Israel, but is a part and parcel of God's judgment on the devil, his judgment on the rebellious kingdom of the world, and a part and parcel of God at work to restore this world and make all things new. See, consequently, God's victories are good news for the world. As God brings divine justice on all that is evil, he is at the same time restoring his good creation, magnifying the glory of his grace, and bringing salvation to undeserving sinners. It's true for Israel. What is Israel? They're just this miserable, um, stubborn, stiff-necked people, this slave nation. So why does God save them? So that the glory of his grace gets magnified. Everybody in the world is saying, why in the world is God doing this for Israel? <coughs> They're nobody. They're nothing. Have you met the Israelites? Um, the point is, you see the glory of God. And it's that, that grace of God being magnified spills over. Think about Rahab, the prostitute in Jericho who sees this work of God and, and considers what kind of God is this. I mean, if he, can, if he can show compassion and favor to the Israelites, surely he could show compassion to a prostitute in Jericho. And she's right. He surely can. And she comes to believe in the Lord and actually becomes one of the mothers of Jesus Christ. He said, the victory of God over evil is salvation for the world. And it's, and it's salvation for every sinner. It's good news for every sinner who bends the knee. This is, this is our own story. Um, the victory of God over our rebellious self was the best thing that ever happened to us. Isn't it? it, it God had to destroy you to save you. He had, he had to destroy your pride with his law. He had to dev devastate your self-justifications with his truth. He had to ruin you as a proud, self-dependent, self-reliant person so that you could be saved. He had to completely run over you in order to rescue you. And when you come to that recognition, what do you say? Praise God, the best thing that ever happened to me is I was destroyed by the living king. It was the day I was saved. God's victories, friends, are good news. His kingly reign is the hope of the world. And we should celebrate it. And that's what the psalmist does. The coronation, verses 5 through 7, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet, sing praises to God. Notice just this repetition. Sing praises is one word in the Hebrew. And so it just has this, this sound of praise, 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 as though the people are gathering and the song is going up. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises, for God is the king of all the earth, sing praises with a psalm. The, the, the anthem now is building. The chorus uh, is, is gathering as, as people come and worship the king of all the earth. And then in the final verses, we have the consummation. God reigns over the nation. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. The psalm closes, you see, this is a mission psalm, and it closes with a vision for a um, universal worship that uh, when, when the nations gather together, the princes of the people gather, 
as the people of the God of Abraham. Uh, who are the children of Abraham? Well, you might in the Old Testament say the children of Abraham are the Jews. Ethnically, that's true. But in the New Testament, what do we know? Well, the children of Abraham are all those who believe in the God of Abraham. Uh, Abraham is the father of those who believe. Uh, the church is the children of Abraham. And, and the, the writer here is, is looking forward to a day when the promise given to Abraham that I will be your God and I will be your great reward and I will bring you into the land when that promise spills out now into all the nations just as God had intended. And that's, of course, exactly what took place when Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, came into this world. The blessing of Abraham became a blessing, the blessing of the nations. And, and the nations begin to be gathered in, including stubborn Dutchmen who are invited to come and worship the sovereign king, or Frenchman or German, whatever your background might be. Praise God, you see, that the gospel has run over all ethnic and national boundaries. The reign of God is taking place as the Lord claims um, captives for himself, as King Jesus reigns at the right hand of God. And every single child that was given to him in election in eternity past, every single one will be gathered in as the children of Abraham, the people of the God of Abraham. God is not the Christian God. He's the Lord. Lord of the universe. He's the sovereign king. And we can have great comfort in that, great courage in that. Jesus Christ reigns for us. And so our status, our identity, our, our comfort and security, our authority, it's all found in Jesus He's the Lord. His word is our rule. Um, his glory is our glory. His kingly reign and kingdom, that's our identity. And the glory of Jesus means that it's a glorious kingdom and we get to be a part of it. He's made us a kingdom and priest to our God. And his, his power is our security. The shields of the earth belong to him. Nothing, nothing can touch you apart from his sovereign will which means we have absolutely nothing to fear. Christians are such unique individuals in the world, such a unique group of people, people who need fear nothing, not even death itself. So what will it look like as we wrap up? What will it look like to actually respond to Psalm 47? What are we actually supposed to do? Well, I think there's many things that you could, you could add to my short list, but wouldn't this mean trust the king? Delight in the king, rejoice in the king, serve the king. As you go about your life, live as a kingdom person, that your identity is being shaped more and more by who you are uh, with Jesus Christ as your sovereign Lord. I think it would look like celebrating his reign. As you read your newspaper, as you see the kingdoms of this world in all their chaos and all their, their instability and weakness, you, re, you re remember that we belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken because we belong to a king whose throne will endure forever and ever. Celebrate that fact as you, as you walk through this crumbling world. Engage in joyful, exuberant worship. I know uh, we have a thing, maybe a, we're a little leery about too much expression in worship. I think Psalm 47, um, we should have a vision of clapping and shouting, uh, rejoicing spontaneously 
because God is worthy. But it's a call every day to praise and, and give thanks and to trust in God. And then it's a call, finally, to call others to come and worship Him. He's their God too, whether they recognize it or not, whether they want to acknowledge it or not. We have the right to say to anyone, you owe your God worship. Come, let me tell you about Him. Come and worship with me. God is gathering His people. Amen. There you go, Miss. <laughs> Praise God. Let's, um, let's, let's, let's give our thought this week Okay, to actually living like Jesus is king, actually trusting him, actually loving him, celebrating his victory. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, you are a great king, the Lord of all the earth. And who are we that you should invite us to come and know you and to worship you? Oh God, I thank you that you're worthy of our praise and worship and trust and obedience. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that, that uh, in you we are secure, that in you, Lord, we are glorified. You are our identity. Thank you that you're our authority, that your, your word is our law. It's a beautiful law as you call us to love you and to trust you and to love others in your name. Jesus, I pray that you would give us the faith then to walk this week with Psalm 47 on our minds, with the reality of King Jesus on our hearts, that it would change the way we think and how we feel and how we live. We'll give you the praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen.